All right, welcome to Rose Colored Glasses. This is a podcast where I, Wayne Lester, dive deep into the media that influenced me as a kid of the late 80s and early 90s through the lens of nostalgia. The Dark Crystal is an epic children's fantasy movie, the first live-action film to be released with no human beings on screen. It was all done with puppets. This took five years to create and to film, and it was released on December 17th of 1982. The Dark Crystal was co-directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz of Muppets and Sesame Street fame, with Brian Froud as the conceptual designer and David O'Dell as the screenwriter. The budget was $15 million, and it made $40 million total, so a success, but it was a little bit delayed, and I'll cover more about that later. The Dark Crystal terrified me as a kid, but I still watched it probably a dozen times. The puppets were strange and ugly, but somehow they were captivating despite that. The world itself was harsh and unforgiving at times, but at others it was gorgeous and serene. And it is chock full of nostalgia. There are certain sound bites, characters, and scenes that are just etched into my mind. My parents inherited the VHS of the Dark Crystal from my mom's sister, who's my aunt Amy. My grandmother bought it for her back in the mid-80s because she thought it looked like a nice, friendly, light-hearted kids movie uh, just based on the cover. And speaking of the cover art, it does look fairly tame, uh, if a little bit odd. It depicts these two elfish beings riding this bizarre crustacean creature with hair. Uh, a sinister-looking bird creature is standing menacingly behind them. The font is badass and 80s as all hell. It sort of looks like a mashup of old English and death metal and Tolkien fantasy. Uh, it's crimson red with this gold border. And our copy had a green plastic case, which is nostalgic to me in and of itself for some reason. And there's a quote from the Washington Post at the bottom left that says, a one-of-a-kind imaginative marvel, which is absolutely true. Anyway, my grandma thought that one of the elves looked like her daughter Amy because of her short hair. Growing up, my family had this tall wooden cabinet with these glass doors that acted as a sort of entertainment center for us, and it held all of the cassettes and the VHS player itself, and then there was a TV on top. My brother and I would sit on the carpet, crane our necks upward. Uh, we were probably sipping Capri Sun. We watched everything on that TV and that VHS player, from The Lion King to the atrocity that was we sing in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. I'm not sure if you guys remember that one, but uh, that one's a trip. Anyway, the film that stood out the most to us was The Dark Crystal. We were just captivated by that cover art, and uh, once we popped it in that player, we were just transfixed by the colors and the music and the terrifying characters that played out this epic, sprawling adventure before us.
another world, another time, in the age of wonder. This is the narration that begins The Dark Crystal. This movie tells the story of Jin, a Gelfling, which is a puppet elf, basically, and his journey to fulfill a prophecy and bring balance to the fo- um, to the land of Thra. A thousand years ago, the three suns aligned, that's one more than Tatooine, by the way, and the Great Conjunction occurred, shattering the Great Crystal of Truth and splitting the enlightened but not so enlightened as to avoid destruction by hubris, Erskex, into two separate races, the gentle sage-like mystics and the malevolent rodent-munching Skexes. And from there, a millennium-spanning war begins. When the crystal shattered, a shard was broken off and lost. A prophecy exists that a Gelfling, <coughs> Hobbit, <coughs> excuse me, will come along and be the one to restore the crystal. This story sounds vaguely familiar, it's because the dark crystal is filled to the brim with Campbellian hero's journey tropes. And this isn't all bad, because some of our favorite and most beloved stories and films, like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, they all use a similar overarching plot. You know, the innocent, naive, seemingly average protagonist discovers that he has a fate larger than himself, and he must leave his home to embark on a quest to quell a deep evil and save his village, or the world. Along the way, he meets a wise sage, parties up with a companion or two, sacrifices or loses something dear to him, defeats the malevolent force, and transcends into legend, oftentimes bringing some sort of boon to his people. There's a behind-the-scenes documentary called The World of the Dark Crystal that is difficult to find. Uh, if you search on YouTube hard enough, you can find a bootleg copy. I'm not condoning this, I'm just saying, hypothetically, you might be able to find it somewhere. But anyway, it gives a lot of details about how the world and its characters were crafted, and the story as well, and just the intense amount of time and energy that went into making this production. So I won't do a complete scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of this movie. Uh, if you want to watch it yourself, it is on Netflix currently as of May 2019. I think the statute of limitations is up. Uh, it's been about 37 years since this movie was released, so uh, I'm sorry if I spoil anything for you, but you have been sufficiently warned. All right, so I do want to talk about the characters first because they are arguably the most important aspect of this film. So we've got Jin, the protagonist that I mentioned earlier, uh, a Gelfling. He is the fulfiller of prophecy, and he's the only Gelfling that survived the genocide by the Skeksis a thousand years ago. Jin was puppeteered by Jim Henson himself, and was voiced by Stephen Garlick. He has the personality of a wet paper bag, but he is the conduit for the audience. He's the bridge character, the one we're meant to identify with. Well, him and the next character I want to talk about, which is Kira. Kira is the other 
last Gelfling. She and Jin dream fast when their hands touch about a third of the way through the movie, where they essentially telepathically give each other their backstories, which are both tragic and involve the deaths of their parents at the hands of the Skeksis. It turns out that Kira also has wings. Only girl Gelflings have them, to Jin's disappointment and to the destruction of his fragile masculinity. Next up is Fizzgig, which is Kira's pet. Uh, he's apparently a Pokemon because his name is identical to the species name. He growls and cries in equal measure, but is a loyal companion to Kira and eventually to Jin as well. And then we've got the Mystics. These are four-armed, octogenarian, turtle, dinosaur, zen, monk wizards with killer vocal cords. They are the good guys. They are soft-spoken and sage-like, moving very slowly. The practicality of piloting these suits was not easy. The actors had to sort of crouch down on their haunches and walk with their arms stretched out in front of them. Jim Henson said in the documentary that he tried to do it once, and he could only do it for five or ten seconds max. But the puppeteers who actually piloted these uh, mystics on set sometimes had to do two to three minute scenes in this stance. So it was super physically taxing. Uh, the leader of the mystics is Jin's master, whose name is Urso, who sends Jin on his quest to repair the crystal of truth as his dying act. And then, of course, we've got the Skeksis. They are these sort of decrepit reptilian vulture creatures, and they control the dark crystal for some unexplained reason, and they use its power to corrupt the lesser creatures and to drain their life essence in order uh, to drink it and stay young, or at least retain their youth. They fear Gelflings, and they think they are hideously ugly, which is kind of hilarious when you see uh, who the truly ugly ones are. They're also genderless, which is interesting, though a few of them were given more feminine traits, but they are fairly obviously the bad guys in this story. The Crystal of Truth. Though it's not exactly a character, it does appear to have some level of sentience. It shows uh, the Skeksis, different visions, uh, either of the Gelflings or something else, and it also drains the slaves of their life essence. In a way, it reminds me of the One Ring from Lord of the Rings, in that it has some kind of will or desire, but being an essentially inanimate object, it articulates its will by manipulating living creatures. The crystal shard that Jin carries with him also shows visions and images and acts as a sort of a weapon in a few instances. So I'm going to kind of count the crystal as a character. All right, next up is Agra. She is this crazy old witch with one eye that she holds in her hand like, uh, like crumb from All Real Monsters. And she cryptically witch-splains the end of the world. Or the beginning? Hmm? Uh, it's terrible. Agra is one of the characters that sticks out the most in my mind from childhood. She is so ugly she's beautiful, according to Frank Oz, and I think that's pretty apt. Uh, her skin is gray and excessively wrinkly. Her voice and demeanor are kind of harsh. Uh, she's equal parts creepy and annoying, constantly asking a bunch of questions 
in a row and throwing in a bunch of hmms like over and over and just kind of being cryptic for the sake of it. What's it for? Hmm? Hmm? Is that what you want to know? You want to know what this is all about? Is that it, girlfriend? You don't know? And also it must be really cold in her laboratory because she is nipping hard. Yes! The Chamberlain is a Skeksis, uh, and he's another iconic character, almost exclusively due to his supremely annoying whimper. I distinctly remember the sound. He's sort of the antagonist to the film, but really the whole Skeksis race are the enemies. Uh, but the Chamberlain's very much a beta trying to be alpha. And he's a recurring obstacle throughout the film, though he was helpful at one point. The general is the new emperor of the Skeksis when the old one disintegrates into powder at the beginning. Uh, he's brash and rude and selfish and kind of a one note. He's kind of the archetypal evil emperor. Uh, he wants the Gelflings dead more than anything. We've got the Garthim, which are these hulking, armored beetle creatures who don't speak, but they make this like terrifying clacking sound. And they're sort of the grunt forces that the Skeksis use. And they're essentially a hive mind. Uh, and their sole focus and their sole purpose is to find and kill the Gelflings and also to kidnap the Podlings and other lesser races for the Skeksis to use their life-sucking ritual on and uh, drain their essence. The Podlings are a race of these Muppet-like creatures uh, who raised Kira after her family was killed by the Gartham. They really like to party. We've got the Landstriders, which are these giant praying mantis lobster kind of creatures. Uh, which are actually really impressive when you see the behind-the-scenes footage of how they piloted these suits. The actors had these stilts on their arms and their legs, and they would sort of jump around on them. And it's kind of hard to explain, but think of like a cheetah with, you know, six-feet arms. Um, but it was so dangerous that they had to wear these harnesses attached to gigantic cranes to keep them from getting hurt if they fell because they were up, you know, eight feet in the air or something. And then finally, we've got the Urskeks, which are the master race, the one that existed before the Great Conjunction. Uh, their hubris caused the crystal to shatter. The Urskeks were separated into the Skeksis and Mystics. But they're otherwise benevolent, wise, and sort of transcendent beings, bearing resemblance to aliens with trees on their heads. They don't appear until the final couple minutes of the film where they thank Jin for fulfilling the prophecy by repairing the crystal, jamming that shard into the uh, open slot there. And uh, they resurrect Kira when she gets stabbed by the Skeksis in the final scene. And they tell Jin he's essentially the custodian of the new world at this point. Beyond that, there are dozens of various creatures that inhabit Thra. Um, both large and small, but I'm not going to cover each individual one of those. And now I want to spend a little time on the music because this soundtrack uh, is just incredible. 
Trevor Jones is the composer, and I think he just did a phenomenal job. It has the perfect mix of darkness, hope, and playfulness, and the the score is just extremely memorable, and it carries the film through both the highs and lows. The Dark Crystal Overture is a sweeping epic tune, uh, the full orchestra evoking this grand sense of adventure and impending doom. And a variation of the melody here is used throughout the film and, and other tracks. And uh, it's just, it's a gorgeous, haunting melody. We've got the funerals slash Jin's journey, which has this menacing, busy organ melody, which turns into a softer, more melancholic one. There's chimes and soft horns and all that. And then it eventually returns to the overture theme, which uh, is a recurring theme, obviously, on this soundtrack. There's also the pod dance, and this is a fun one. It evokes a sort of Celtic jig. It's upbeat and dancey with these energetic flutes. There's some kind of banjo sitar situation. And then, uh, is that a kazoo? This tune plays during a fun scene showing the podlings partying their little hearts out. This is before the Gartham bust in and ruin the shindig like cops at a college party. The Love Theme is another iconic song that starts out with light woodwinds and sweeping strings, and it picks up halfway through and turns into this sort of melodramatic uh, theme once again, and then there's a reprise to the overture again at the end. The Gelfling Song is one of my favorites. It plays during this memorable scene where Jin and Kira are floating down the river together and Kira starts chanting and singing as various frogs and cricket-like creatures chirp in the background. And eventually Jin joins in with his furka, which is a double-pronged, uh, Y-shaped flute. It's an eerie but lovely little tune that sort of allows us to slow down and catch our breath before the coming storm. The Great Conjunction plays at the climax as Jin and Kira are fighting for their lives and for the future of Thra. It's very intense with these odd clangs and crashes playing throughout. It does a great job of framing what's happening on screen. This final confrontation as time's running out and the three sons are inching ever closer to alignment. 
And then again, the overture theme is brought back for this. And then the finale is just a comprehensive sort of reprisal of the entire soundtrack. And this is what plays during the end credits scene and wraps the film up nicely. And I just want to give a shout out to Tom McLaughlin. He's the foam latex supervisor. Also his assistants, Sue Higgins and Joan Garrick. They do not get enough credit for their work in this film. So as I said, The Dark Crystal both terrified and fascinated me when I was a kid. I distinctly remember some of these scenes and definitely the characters and their dialogue. Um, though the plot largely went over my head, when I was young, uh, I was still captivated by the music and the, the characters and just the world itself. So, does The Dark Crystal still hold up today? Kinda? The plotline itself is fairly simple and the dialogue is often cheesy, but the art design, score, and the detail on the puppets is frankly astounding. It took the Dark Crystal team five years to create this film, and it's the project that Jim Henson himself said he found the most rewarding of anything he's ever done. He was immensely proud of the Dark Crystal, as he should be. It's, it's an immeasurable accomplishment and involved hundreds of actors, mimes, clowns, dancers, engineers, puppeteers, sculptors, plasterers, and foam latex supervisors. So how did the idea for The Dark Crystal even come about? As it turns out, it was a confluence of events, a great conjunction, if you will. Jim Henson and his daughter were snowed in at an airport hotel in the late 1970s. They couldn't leave, and so with nothing else to do, Henson sketched out the initial rough plot of The Dark Crystal. He took inspiration from Leonard Lubin's illustrations of Lewis Carroll poetry, who you probably know from Alice in Wonderland, and also more directly from Brian Froud's illustrative work in the book Once Upon a Time. And eventually this culminated in Froud's addition to the conception of The Dark Crystal. Henson wanted the film to pull heavily from Grimm's fairy tales. He thought it was unhealthy for children to never be afraid. So, thanks for that, Jim. Mission accomplished. It was Henson's intention from the start to create this dark, scary world, rife with frightening characters and high stakes. And he wanted this rich, organic feel as well, and did a bunch of research into philosophy and art films as the script took shape. Brian Froud is an excellent visual artist who comes up with these crazy, otherworldly designs. He always starts with the eyes, because that's the proverbial window into the soul, and that's where the characters really come alive. Henson, Oz, and puppet designers took this to heart when designing the puppets as well. They used these intricate engineering techniques to ensure the eyes were as expressive as they could be. The Skeksis needed to have a penetrating stare, 
The mystics needed to look gentle and soft around the eyes, and the Gelflings needed to be fairly human-like so the audience could identify with them, because they were, after all, the bridge characters. The team started off small with six or eight people, and they began building these rough models and seeing how they moved and then reiterating. After years of this, literal years, they finally settled on the proper designs. As for the storyline, they did it in reverse to how it's normally done. They did the creature development first and then the storyboards later. So when David O'Dell was writing his storyboards, he had to consider whether the movements could actually be done with the puppets. So there was a lot of rewriting at this stage. Tons of engineering work was done to be able to articulate the limbs, the fingers, the eyes, and the mouths of the creatures. So that growing team was split into groups or units. They had one for the Skeksis, one for the Mystics, one for the Gelflings. Pretty much every uh, race had its own unit. The Gartham were very difficult to design and to pilot. The costumes weighed 70 pounds, so the actors could only work for a few minutes at a time before taking breaks and resting. They had these racks they would sort of place the, the actors on while they were in their suit so they didn't have to hold the entire weight of that costume up while they were in between scenes. It was important to Henson for the actors to be able to get in and out of the suits quickly and efficiently. It was a huge time waste if every actor took 15 minutes to get into their costumes, so they approached the design of the puppets with this in mind. They used these small, lightweight monitors in each suit so the actors could see outside. This was in 1982, so it's pretty high-tech if you ask me. The team also drew dozens of hyper-detailed maps. They had to know the terrain, what lays beyond this mountain range, and how the whole world connected to make it seem real and alive. Brian Froud sketched everything, and then Harry Lang converted those drawings into these beautiful glass matte paintings. And they used these for the backgrounds, and then they would marry those into the real-world scenery uh, that the sculptors and plasterers had made. The Dark Crystal team had 80 sculptors, plasterers, and other artists working on the project. All of the exterior views you see from the uh, tower of the Skeksis to uh, Agra's lab, all the exterior shots you see were sculptures, and they were very intricate and detailed. Henson, Oz, and company wanted there to be a distinct sense of fairy tale magic, so they added this fake color tint to each scene sort of color wash, as they call it, to mimic Froud and Lang's original drawings and paintings. So to wrap things up, The Dark Crystal was an immense effort by a team of dedicated, passionate artists, actors, and crew members. Though at an initial screening, the audience was not that into it. The audience didn't really care for the story and the voice acting was not up to par. So Henson and company made a bunch of edits, they re-recorded all the Skeksis voice lines, and then they released the film in December of 1982. Where it received lukewarm reception from critics and audiences alike, there was concern it was too dark and too intense for children, which is pretty much exactly what Henson's goal was. But another reason it didn't perform very well is that it was competing with E.T., which was just an absolute behemoth of a movie in 82. So The Dark Crystal only made $4 million on its opening weekend, and 
like I mentioned earlier, the budget was 15 million. So at this point, we're 11 in the hole, but that's just opening weekend. So eventually, over time, the movie became a sort of cult classic, revered by 80s and 90s kids and adults. It's currently sitting at 73% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is not too shabby. There's also a video game, which was this adventure title that graphically looked a lot like a coloring book. That was released in 83, and though it looks primitive by today's standards, it was actually really well received back in the day. It won a Best Computer Adventure Award in 84, I think. There were also a few comics released by Marvel in 1982, and then more were released in 2016. Those are called The Power of the Dark Crystal, and that acts as a sequel to the original film. And I haven't checked those out yet, but I would love to get my hands on a copy. And speaking of sequels, there was briefly a movie sequel in the works, but it was never filmed. There will, however, be a prequel series of The Dark Crystal taking place long before the events of the 82 movie, and that'll be coming to Netflix in the coming years. The Dark Crystal was a formative childhood film for me. Though it terrified me, I look back fondly on the memories that were forged from this movie. I hadn't seen it in probably a decade. As I said, it still kind of creeps me out, even though the practical effects are less impressive and less scary to my adult mind. But when I rewatched it, it brought back floods of nostalgic memories of sitting on that carpet in front of the tall wooden glass cabinet, my neck craned 180 degrees upwards, eyes just wide as moons watching as this colorful, utterly unique fantasy world unfolded in front of me. Through rose-colored glasses, this film is definitely worth a rewatch. I don't necessarily feel like the story itself is particularly unique or interesting. I mean, the world and character building certainly were. Uh, but the artistic beauty weaved throughout the film is just unmistakable. Even though the practical effects are a little dated in the sense that they, they might not stand up against today's CGI, but I think the movie is such a delight to revisit almost because it was a product of its time. Well, that's all for me, folks. Thanks for listening. Feel free to drop me a line at rosecolored underscore pod on Twitter or rosecoloredpod at gmail.com if you have any thoughts or stories of your own to share. And don't forget to equip those rose-colored glasses from time to time, because it's thanks to the past that we are who we are today. <laughs>